Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that normally pairs compelling themes with some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week we have a special episode. Ooh. What is that special episode, Chris? Well, a couple weeks ago, we recorded a special episode about queer readings of geeky media. But the day after we recorded that, we encountered this really amazing article that we wanted to do a follow-up episode about because it just was so compelling and I think fit our discussion already and what we love about these series so well. I can't believe the universe doesn't revolve around our podcast. (laughs) No, right? Jerk universe. And also, we have kind of finished quote-unquote talking about lord of the rings but we just can't quit lord of the rings no we can't (laughs) and now we don't want to (laughs) so we wanted to have a special episode where we specifically discuss the arguments and evidence and and significance of this article that was published at polygon.com and is titled queer readings of the lord of the rings are not accidents This article was written by Molly Ostertag, who is herself a queer writer and cartoonist. And it's part of an ongoing series of articles and essays that Polygon has been publishing this whole year. Polygon is a website, it's actually one of my favorite video game websites, but it covers not just news and features about video games, but also kind of nerddom in general. This year, as the 20th anniversary of the Lord of the Rings films, they are calling it the Year of the Ring, and every Wednesday they're publishing a new essay about the Lord of the Rings movies, books, etc. They've had a lot of really, really great ones, some of which have actually delved into gender in the past. There was a really great article about masculinity and the relationship between Boromir and Aragorn. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I didn't read the article, but just... From observation, yes, very interesting relationship. Absolutely, and and so a lot of these essays have been very interesting, and Ostertag's article was particularly compelling to us after our conversation. And we have the a link to the article in our episode description, which if you haven't read it yet, that's okay. You can listen and then go check it out. I would highly, highly recommend it. Also, Molly Ostertag did art in the article illustrating some scenes from the books, and it's amazing. It's, it's very good. It's really good. So yes, check that out. It is there. Yeah, really great art, and the writing here is really interesting. She particularly examines the relationship between Frodo and Sam, and how that's represented in the text, but also arguing that Tolkien was purposefully including a queer relationship in the text. Mm-hmm. Which, by the end of the article, I 100% am on board with. Like, I buy it completely. Absolutely. Yes. And it's not just my wishful thinking, (laughs) because as we've talked about in our previous Lord of the Rings episodes, it's something that, you know, I had thought about, especially between Frodo and Sam previously, but, you know, I more thought it's not necessarily there. It was just kind of a different time when it was written, and I can read it that way, I cannot read it that way, but that's me coming from this modern audience. Absolutely. And and I think I was probably even more against that reading than you were because yeah, for me the sure. class implications. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that. But for me like the class implications of Frodo and Sam's kind of servant and master relationship, mm-hmm. you know, rubbed me in some wrong ways, but 
I mean, really, it's more employer-employee, but still, not to say there isn't dynamics Um, there. But this article, I think, helped to historicize that context as well Mm -hmm. in a way that makes me feel like that reading is something that I'm not just more comfortable with, but yeah, now can't see it otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think as, as I was going through and reading the article, a couple things really stood out to me as a way to kind of section our time talking about it is one is kind of the historical context of Tolkien himself Mm -hmm. with his lived experiences with the experiences of many people during these great world wars and then also the actual literal text of the books and one thing that I think kind of is an intersection of those things, which I found really fascinating, was when Ostertag was talking about how Lord of the Rings is presented as a primary source mm. rather than a work of fiction. Like, these are the books that Bilbo, Frodo, and Sam wrote. Well, Bilbo wrote There and Back Again, and then Frodo and then Sam finished the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And so by presenting it as a primary source, that means there's like this invitation by the author, which is Frodo and Sam in this case, to look between the lines for hidden truths. They're not going to lay out everything. There is stuff that is purposefully there and there is stuff that is purposefully not there. And that's something that Tolkien would have been incredibly familiar with because apparently he was one of the foremost Beowulf um, scholars of the time. Beowulf being itself a epic that had centuries as an oral legend before it became written down, but was still written down very, very early in the English language. And mm-hmm. so, you know, engages with this idea of it being a primary source in, in interesting ways. Exactly. And so she's she makes this point that it's a conscious choice by the quote-unquote authors, Frodo and Sam, to tell this tale and include these many instances that express their love for each other. That's yeah. the context for the book. And that that is very similar to how, you know, people throughout history have very delicately referred to same-sex uh, relationships throughout, you know, most of <laughs> written <laughs> history, uh, you know, wanting to acknowledge some of their experiences and feelings while still obeying the conventions of the time so that there isn't retribution or so that it's able to be published or, you know, whatever the situation is. Absolutely. You know, as a historian, as someone, you know, who's studied that and and worked in that field for a while now, her engagement with what we refer to as the archive, we put the the definite (laughs) article in front of it to, to know that we're talking about this in kind of a more abstract way, but that the archive is manufactured through cultural choices and values and so the fact that for a very long time queerness was considered taboo meant that documents that included any reference to it that was explicit could easily be destroyed could Mm -hmm. easily be taken out of the archive and so those materials that we have today aren't just the ones that happen to survive but that there are choices that led to what we have access to today and what we do not so this analysis of this book as, as a primary source, I think, is, is really, really compelling. 
Totally. Because it also helps to support her analysis of Tolkien's life and his mm-hmm. engagement with queerness and how we can't, we don't have any in primary source that shows him saying this was a queer relationship. Mm-hmm. But we can't have that source. Exactly. For so many reasons. Mm-hmm. As she mentioned, um, a different person around the same time, I think 1918, was court-martialed. He was like a decorated soldier. And he was court-martialed because in his some of his letters from the battlefield had explicitly mentioned some of the same-sex relationships that were going on, him included, among the military ranks. And instead of standing trial, facing imprisonment, or, you know, whatever, plus the shame that went with it, he decided just to, tragically, he just decided to walk into enemy lines instead and be killed. But his sister saved his letters, Mm. which she said is so rare for that to have happened. Most of these letters, most of these accounts have been destroyed by family, by people who are ashamed that somebody in their family was queer. And so there isn't as much as we know did exist um, that we have to look at. But thankfully, even though tragically, we do have that account to look at. And I think that that connects to some of the things that we were talking about with the the queer readings of texts, which we discussed before as queer reading of media, queer reading Mm -hmm. of books and movies and things like that that don't have it explicitly, whether intentional or not. But historians do the exact same thing. And queer history is something that is a field that has been around for decades but is continuing to grow that is taking histories and taking the archive and queering it in ways that are active of looking for ways to interpret the sources that we do have access to and what sources we don't have access to and and those Mm -hmm. the absence of the sources to try to find out meaning to show the existence of queerness that certainly existed even if it was tried to be removed from that history absolutely it's not like no queer people existed since ancient greece (laughs) until just recently exactly (laughs) yeah yeah one of the things that was interesting to me was ostertag mentions that tolkien modeled some of sam and frodo's relationship off of those of officers and their subordinates in world war Mm one uh subordinates that were apparently called batmen i know didn't know that was a thing batman (laughs) (laughs) but i thought that was an interesting element and and frankly that actually gave me a little bit more context into that kind of class relationship Mm -hmm. and the ways that that class relationship can be utilized in both real romantic experiences, but also she mentioned how it kind of is also a trope of romance in a lot of ways in romantic media Mm -hmm. where you know, the poor person and the rich person get together despite their circumstances. <laughs> totally. Which is something that I didn't really think of in that way My for Fair Fred Lady, and Sam. Not that it's a good narrative, but it's there. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that she said that, it's just like, oh, yeah, obviously <laughs> that's the case. So that was actually near the beginning of her article, which Mm -hmm. already started to open up my mind to the argument that she was putting forth. And she added a lot more of really, really important context that helped sell it. So you like when she says it, 
but not when I say it and don't back it up with any historical facts. <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> yeah, a, a quick shortcut to get me to believe you or agree with you is provide historical evidence. <laughs> uh, yeah. Another interesting thing in the article for kind of the historical context was her kind of talking about so many people are like, no, but Tolkien was a Catholic writer. Mm. And, you know, that leads people to assume that he was not tolerant of queerness. But there's actually a lot of evidence to the contrary yeah. of people that he was in relationship with. I mean, not to say romantic, who knows, but at least friendship relationship with. So one openly gay poet, W.H. Auden, who Tolkien said was one of my great friends and Auden wrote glowing reviews of the Lord of the Rings books when they came out. Also, you know, Tolkien's friend group, the Inklings, which are famous, uh, one of their members separated from his wife and lived a, quote, quietly homosexual life, which <laughs> I'm not sure what that is, but that's there. Um, he also was a teacher and fan of writer Mary Raynald, who spent her life in a romantic relationship with another woman and actually she was saying became kind of an icon among gay men for writing sympathetically about same-sex relationships in ancient Greece and Tolkien wrote that he was quote deeply engaged in her books so clearly he had very good relationships with queer people in a time when being queer was still punished by law yeah. in the United Kingdom. Yeah, his Catholicism did not lead him to just be a bigot against all queer people mm -hmm. if he had these relationships. Yeah, and I think something that's also really interesting, she was like, did he have queer lived experiences? Mm -hmm. Like, we can never know, but apparently most of his school classmates were drafted and most of them died at war and one Joffrey Bosch Smith was a poet and his work is considered homoromantic by modern readers and before going into battle one day he wrote to Tolkien saying my dear John Ronald may you say the things I have tried to say long after I am there to say them. So she's drawing some parallels potentially between Tolkien and Smith and Frodo and Sam because after he died at war, Tolkien was driven to like collect all of his poems and publish them. So she says, you know, there's kind of echoes there with Frodo leaving and Sam staying and finishing the book telling of their, their quest of their tale together. Yeah. That's something that was really profound for me. I had never looked into these kinds of things before. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, me neither. There are so many instances in the text that could be read as queer without having to make a big jump <laughs> to get there, as we will see. Or there are literal words <laughs> that you don't just have to be like, no, it couldn't mean that. But that's the thing is I feel like there is such a presumption, such an, a, a overwhelming assumption that people make that, oh, just because we see it on, on the page say that Sam kissed Frodo, 
But this was written in the 1940s. It just meant something different back then. Exactly. We made those assumptions ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. That, that there's no possible way that Tolkien could have included this to mean this way. It was just some sort of, you know, part of his ideal that wouldn't include anything like mm -hmm. this. But I think that, that it shows that even people like us, mm -hmm. who you have lived queer experiences, we both, I think, as we've shown in this podcast, try to have readings that are open and progressive and, and representative. We were among those who were doing acrobatics to try <laughs> right. to find reasons why it's not queer. Yeah. And I think that that is really illustrative of some of the, the things we were talking about in our Pride episode of how important queer coding is and how important queer readings are as an active element of fandom because it is so natural in the way that we are socialized to try to find any reason why it's not that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing, too, like you were talking about in our queering episode before about the Comics Code Authority and there was the Hayes Code. You know, there were these different codes that like you can't have these topics in or else we're not going to produce your work. Yeah. And so I think because we grew up in an environment, even if those things weren't entirely enforced anymore, we were still in the aftermath of all of that time yeah. when it was enforced. So that to imagine a time in like the 40s and 50s, if that wouldn't have been the case, is it was just beyond my imagining. And so it was just like, oh no, that it couldn't have been that or else these books couldn't have become popular. Mm -hmm. But I think it is a compelling idea that a lot of these men who experienced these world wars and experienced some of these things including queer experiences whether before during or after probably could relate yeah absolutely well why don't we talk a little bit about some of those textual evidence that ostertag uses to support her claims yeah because there are a lot and they are, <laughs> are excellent and i love them yeah and it's just so great to see them like laid out together because the books are long. There's a lot of descriptions <laughs> and there is Tom Bombadil and sometimes <laughs> you just can't see through the weeds. <laughs> the weeds that Tom Bombadil tells them to go run naked through? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. All these men together. Yeah. yeah. Those weeds. <laughs> and so seeing them all like just laid out together is just so striking. Yeah. Again, with beautiful art that mm -hmm. also tech includes. So for example, in the introduction in the Lord of the Rings, it says that Bilbo and Frodo Baggins were as bachelors, very exceptional compared to other residents of the Shire. And Bilbo had whole rooms devoted to clothes, which can certainly read as queer. Doesn't have to be, but it certainly can. Yeah. Also, Bilbo never married. Apparently, Tolkien went through several drafts, trying and failing to imagine a wife for Bilbo, and said, quote, Bilbo wanted to remain unattached for some reason deep down, which he did not understand himself or would not acknowledge, for it alarmed him. That quote coming from a letter, correct? Yes. Yeah. Very striking mm -hmm. to read that. And yeah, and, and when I think about those kinds of 
early descriptions of Frodo and Bilbo as exceptional, as kind of being outside of the expected behavior for hobbits. Mm -hmm. I am so quick to read that as, oh, it's because they like adventures. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's because they don't just stay at home and they don't only love beer and pipeweed and food the way that other hobbits do. It couldn't be because they're agrarian communities that need children to farm and they just aren't participating in those social norms. Exactly. And and really, we open the books with them as being outside of social expectations and norms, as you mentioned. And as the way that we are introduced to these characters, such a telling example. As bachelors, there is a gendered component to the way they are not meeting social expectations. Mm. And like literally in the books, like again, let's get right into the text. <laughs> Bag End with Frodo and Bilbo living there is described by other hobbits as, quote, a queer place and its folks are queerer. So, <laughs> so it's right there. <laughs> it is right there. And I was like, but queer used to just mean odd, right? But apparently it was by the late 1800s, which is decades before Tolkien is writing and publishing these books, the adjective already had strong connotation for homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is just right there. Yeah. Unless, again, you're trying to make excuses as to why Unless it's not you're trying that. to backflip out of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think for me, one of the most telling examples was the ways in which the story of Baron and Luthien parallels Frodo and Sam's story. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Um, and actually is the way that I, I, first time I heard about this article, because I saw a Twitter thread where a Tolkien scholar was talking about how if he had ever taught another class on Tolkien, he would include this as a required reading and mm. specifically lay out these parallels between Baron and Luthien and Sam and Frodo. And if you don't remember Baron and Luthien, in the movies, Aragorn sang a little song about them. A ditty. <laughs> no, I think the hobbits do ditties. <laughs> I think this was a song. <laughs> and Frodo asks him, who is it, you know, that you're singing about? And Aragorn explains the tale of Baron Luthien, which was a human man and immortal elf and them, you know, wanting to be together. And then, you know, in the end, she dies yeah. because she gave up her immortality. And this is considered to these people in the Third Age as essentially the greatest love story of their world. And then you see... Once you put the two side by side, their story and Frodo and Sam's story, how she also follows him on a quest. Well, you know, he has this impossible quest, but she insists on going along. Yes, yes. Also, both Frodo and Baron were trapped in a tower by their enemies. Well, and this is from the books, not the movie. But Sam and Luthien sing a song and Frodo and Baron answer mm -hmm. the song. And then they can find where they are locked in this tower. Baron loses a hand, Frodo loses a finger. The file of Galadriel that Frodo has was actually made with the light from a star formed by the object of Baron's quest. Which I think was a Silmaril. 
Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you I think would know that better. Ostertag didn't want to get into that, yes. but that's what I read it as. <laughs> I didn't either, so I forgot that bit. <laughs> but Sam, even in the books, notes that and says, We're in the same tale still. Yeah. And all of these parallels for someone who is as she says, meticulous, (laughs) a writer about world building, mythology, language, as Tolkien was, these things have to be intentional. And someone who is as intentional about when he uses poetry and music and story in his tales. The fact that he includes them, and he includes them so often, shows that this is, to him, an important element of his narrative and world building. Mm Mm-hmm. And so to have those narratives there shows that these are important connections that Tolkien has made in his conception of these characters. Totally. And there's even a a quote by Tolkien about the height of romantic love. And what he said it is, is it takes in far more than physical pleasure and enjoins, if not purity, at least fidelity and so self-denial, service, courtesy, honor, and courage. And who does that sound like? Definitely couldn't sound like Frodo and Sam because they're both dudes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that is Sam. Service is right in there, but also mm-hmm. courage, which they both show to such great extent. Fidelity. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So yeah, after after reading Ostertag's arguments and her evidence and, and also just the way that she lays this out in a very compelling and, and well-argued way, I can't read Lord of the Rings any differently. You can't read the sentence... Sam comforts Frodo with his arms and body any differently. <laughs> I read that very differently today than I read it a couple days ago. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I know. When I read this, I was like, how How did I, you know, it's like Absolutely. these are mental gymnastics we have to go through to get out from seeing what is just plainly written there. Yeah. I mean, and if we want to talk about canonical it never says either of them are straight so we cannot say that they are straight exactly what it does say is that sam gazes at frodo and thinks he's beautiful and then thinks i love him it does say that and so yes it it was fascinating to look at these things and you know i think also because the books are broken up you know you're you're switching back and forth between their story and everybody else in the fellowship so you don't always notice yeah they're basically holding hands all the time it mentions them kissing multiple times I mean I think it's more specific to be like on the head or the hand or whatever but I don't know if it actually always is I don't trust even my remembering that um as being true but at least at one point she mentions it says like it mentions a time where they didn't kiss, which is an even interesting thing to mention. Yeah. Why is that something that Tolkien would put in there as something notable? Exactly. You know? And after Sam finally gets Frodo back after singing a song and finding him, Frodo had been stripped and tortured by the orcs. He's like holding him to his chest and quote sam felt that he could sit like that in endless happiness but it was not allowed 
So it's right there on the page, friends. It is right we, there. We missed it. You <laughs> maybe missed it. Maybe you're not like us and you got this faster than we did. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. And even Frodo's choice to leave Middle-earth. I mean, part of it, you know, there was this wound that would never heal. But also, Sam described himself as being torn in two by his love for Frodo and his love for his family. And apparently, there was a rejected epilogue Mm. that was eventually published in the history of Middle-earth that was set years after Frodo left. And Tolkien was fond of this final chapter, but it was cut because early readers told him it was too sentimental. And in the epilogue, Sam's teenage daughter observes, quote, your treasure has left, referring to Frodo. And she directly compares Sam's love of Frodo to Celeborn's love of his wife, Galadriel. And the epilogue ends with Sam hearing the sound of the sea that separates him from Frodo, quote, deep and unstilled, which even though that language, it doesn't just go away. Like Mm -hmm. it's still there. It's still very much alive and active for him. Yeah. So I'm convinced. Me too. (laughs) I'm confused on how I was ever not convinced to begin with, but... Now part of me just wants to go back and read the books again. <laughs> um, at the very least, all of Frodo and, and Sam's parts. Yeah, kind of revel in this more because reading the article was just so... Like, it just made me so happy. Like, yeah. first I was like, wait, what? How was I so oblivious? But... It just made me so happy because there were things that I, you know, noticed or saw and assumed were whatever my, just me thinking it. But to see and to be confident in the fact that these things were there in this thing that I've enjoyed and loved and appreciated for two decades. Yeah, it's it's just meaningful and exciting and... Y'all should read the article. <laughs> you really should. <laughs> and and it also, I think, highlights how important this kind of cultural criticism is. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you just said how happy it made you to do Absolutely. this and how excited it's made you to re-engage with this. Like, I literally media. almost started crying, like, two times when I was reading the article, which is very unlike me. And when we have built these relationships with texts and with history that make it so that the mental gymnastics we keep referring to become normalized, become the expectation. These kinds of discussions and the work that people like Ostertag are putting in and putting out there, and, and Polygon is by publishing this, is so important to challenge that because otherwise we are just maintaining, I think, those problematic assumptions. And we're also missing a huge important part of the text as it is. Absolutely. We're applying the homophobic world that we have been raised and socialized in to the text and in so doing, making characters straight that aren't straight. Yeah. And in so doing, losing some of the the meaning and depth of the text. Yeah. 
I mean, not to say that it's not a meaningful story if they are only friends. Of course. Of course it's That's what we've been arguing for three years on this podcast. Exactly. It is so meaningful. But that's not what was written. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that that came up while we were talking about doing this article was I I saw another article that quoted Ian McKellen in the cast commentary for The Fellowship of the Ring. Ian McKellen, an out gay man. Exactly. And apparently at the end of that movie, he suggested that Sam and Frodo hold hands in their choice to basically go off together after the breaking of the fellowship. And he comments about how this was something that he as a gay man didn't know if this would be the kind of thing that would even be thought of by the two straight actors who are portraying these these characters. And to me, that just continued to speak about how important queer representation is behind the camera as well, and, and in front of the camera, but in the creative process of creating or adapting these kinds of materials, because this was one person on set who was able to make this suggestion. And it was only one person on set making this suggestion. Mm-hmm. And there are still so A many... textually accurate suggestions. Exactly. So even having him there, I think, is amazing and important. But also, when you think about all the other people who are not only actors, but creatives, directors, writers, editors, etc., who are part of how this is produced and made and represented on screen, having more the the people who will be making those suggestions, making those choices, is crucial in being able to have representation that doesn't just also reinforce that kind of homophobic culture and expectation that we've been socialized with. Yeah, and ultimately there were choices to take out things that were in the books or in the text like we just went over in the adaptation to movies and it's just it's a rather baffling thing to think about that these books could get so popular and then famous yet a movie coming out in the 2000s would cut it out yeah it says something about culture and and money yes so yeah in conclusion go read this article yes then reread lord of the rings and minimal homework yeah (laughs) at the very least read the article look at the amazing comic style images that ostertag drew for the article and be excited about it and also (laughs) you know just like we're doing think about analyze look at your own views in the mirror because if we did this here when it was so blatantly obvious Mm -hmm. where else are we doing this in life but thank you molly ostertag if you're listening i would like to be your friend so <laughs> you can reach us at... <laughs> yeah, where could someone find links to our social media if they wanted to get in touch with us? They could find it also where you'd find this article in our episode description. And also you can email us at geekbetween at gmail.com. Molly. Ostertag. <laughs> our hopeful new best friend. <laughs> But no, we would love to hear from you, too, if you find this as exciting as I do. 
Absolutely, yes. Well, what will we be discussing next week? So we are going to be returning to Harry Potter, and we are going to be looking at the series through the theme of war. And maybe the day after we release it, a new article, article will come out about war and Harry Potter that will completely make us rethink things. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening to this fun, special episode of Geek Between the Lines. Another way that you can help support us is by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. And we'd like to thank Kimberly to the Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!